So Romans 1, beginning at the first verse. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Then we continue at Romans chapter 15, verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other in Christ, Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and, moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, as you trust in him, 
so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you when passing through and that you will assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Angie, thank you so much. Let's pray together. Father God, in many ways, Romans, the book, is the Everest of the mountain range that is the Bible scriptures. And so we pray that you might grant us just a glimpse of its beauty and majesty and wonder, and that we might behold your glory and the immensity and the brilliance of the gospel of grace this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> Andrew, would you mind getting me a glass of water? Is that Okay. Just a glass of water would be super helpful, thank you. Um, what do you want for Christchurch as a church? I guess that's a kind of unusual question, at least it was as I was thinking about it earlier this week, because usually we think kind of individually, it's quite hard for us to think corporately, isn't it? That question, what do you want for Christchurch as a church, is a difficult question to think through, but it's a good question to think through because the Bible so often pushes us, encourages us to think corporately rather than just individually. And the answer we give will shape our expectations of what church is like, and will shape what we pray for a church, what will shape what we're looking for in a new church, if that's why we're here at Christchurch. Thanks, Andrew, on the table. It's amazing. Thank you. It's very kind. And the, and the question is a big question for church leaders. It's the sort of question that will keep church leaders up at night. They're great kind of longings or desires or anxieties for the churches that they serve, whether that's church ministers or PCCs or whatever it might be. And two great concerns, two great desires often shape the concerns of gospel ministers, of pastors more than any others. One is unity. 
How will the church I serve and the church I'm part of be united, stay united, be and remain harmonious? Because it's so easy for churches to either drift or be driven apart by disunity, by disagreements or just differences, different culture, different background, different nationality, different languages, different preferences, different interests. Or just the kind of tepid veneer of being bound together by meeting together once a week on a Sunday, but without any actual reality of unity as one church family. So unity, one great desire for the church, but whether or not you find it is another matter. And the other one is outreach. That churches wouldn't just be places that receive the good news about Jesus like a reservoir receives water, but would be places where the good news about Jesus overflows from them, like a fountain or a river, if you like. Water that comes into them, but then flows out from them as well. And it is so easy for churches to end up being inward-looking and forgetting that they are, to be, they are to be rivers rather than reservoirs. They are to be fountains rather than reservoirs or lakes. What will make us the sort of church which is keen to be sent out with the gospel, not just receive the gospel to ourselves. Big corporate questions, but big personal questions too, if you think about it. What will make me really belong to this church family, whether or not I look like I fit in? What will make the people around me, who I may feel very different to me, what will make them stoop to serve me and make, me, and make them draw me into church life? even if I feel very different? What will make us a real community rather than keeping a whole bunch of people on the fringes because they're slightly different to ourselves? And what will send me out? Lots of us want to reach out with the good news of Jesus, don't we? We love him and we love our world and we long for those two things to be put into connection with each other. And yet it's very, very hard to be confident in the good news about Jesus when you actually start talking about it with someone can sound very hollow and tinny in our own ears. And it's very hard in practice to be eager for the gospel to go out, isn't it? Very hard in practice. We might think about it in church and think it's a wonderful thing. We might sing about how wonderful that is in church. But in practice, to actually be eager that your colleague believes in Jesus is a hard thing on a day-to-day, week-to-week kind of level. The Christian life and church life is like a path that goes along a ridge, And there are dangers on the left and on the right. There are dangers of division and disunity. And there are dangers of ceasing to be a church, which is outward looking. Ceasing to be a church, which is sent. And it's to keep the church in Rome, to help the church in Rome more and more stay on that path, which is why Paul writes the book of Romans. This question, how might a church be united and be outward looking, How might it be bound together as one church and sent out with the gospel of Jesus is the great heartbeat of the book of Romans. That is why Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome. And that's helpful to talk about as we begin this series because it is, by any measure, an intimidating book. It's just very, very long. It's the longest New Testament letter. It's intimidating because it's long. It's intimidating because of all the big themes that there are in the letter, some of which are controversial and complicated. J.R. Packer, who was a great Anglican theologian of the 20th century, said this about Romans. He said, Paul's letter to Rome is the high point of Scripture. All roads in the Bible lead to Romans, and all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans which is great, but it causes a problem for the reader of Romans, doesn't it? 
Because which road do I take? And which views do I focus on? And Romans has been and will be used in all sorts of ways to teach systematically what the gospel message is, and it does do that, to um, provide a way of talking about particular controversial topics. And as we work through the letter, we'll have no choice but to cover some controversial topics. In fact, sometimes it will be helpful for us to have an opportunity to go a bit deeper into the letter of Romans. And so we're going to trial something on Sunday afternoons called Romans Extra, a way of going a little bit deeper into some of the things that Romans throws up for us if we'd like it. And we'll say more about that over the coming weeks. But the key question which will drive and guide the way that we approach the whole letter is the question, why did Paul write the letter he wrote to the church in Rome? What was he seeking to do for that church? And ultimately through him, what was the Holy Spirit seeking to do through the letter? And that question is this, to bind the church together and to send the church out. That was his great heart. That was his great longing for this church in Rome. And under God, that is what the book will do for us and do to us. And we won't try and tackle it all in one go. We'll do kind of one to seven over the next few months, and then we'll have a break, and we'll come back to it in a year's time or so. So don't worry, we're not in it for the long haul until we finish. Um, just one to seven um, this, this time, and then we'll have a break. Um, how are we going to cover the whole book today? Because that's kind of the idea and the introduction to the book. And I did read something that suggested not doing this, and I ignored the advice. So I'm, I'm sorry about that. The way we're going to cover it is we're going to look at both the frame of the letter. We go to have the slide up, Brian, if possible. Both the frame of the letter, uh, which is the kind of introduction, and then the conclusion. You see there? And then we're going to look also at the body of the letter, which is the kind of main sort of themes that come out and the main kind of sections that come out. And in the frame, we're going to see those two great concerns that Paul has for both unity and outreach, to be bound together and sent out together. And then we're going to see how the body kind of drives those things home and makes those things possible. That's the idea. Um, so firstly, we're going to think together about the frame, and we're going to think particularly about the author and then about the audience as well. Because a letter, you won't be surprised to hear, has both an author and it has an audience. That's typically how letters work, I believe. I can't confess to write many letters these days, but I'm told that's how they work. So the author is the Apostle Paul. And if you've got it open still, turn back to chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. That is, Paul is a man who has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true Lord of all, to be a herald of this gospel message. That is what he's saying. He's a herald of this message about Jesus, how Jesus really is Lord and has been raised from the dead and appointed king over everybody. And Paul knows that he has an obligation to proclaim, to herald that message. So verse 13 uh, 14, sorry. I am a debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and foolish. Paul has an obligation to proclaim this gospel, particularly actually to the Gentile world. That was the great divide in the ancient world, the Jews and the Gentiles. Um, and Paul knew that his particular obligation was to proclaim the gospel to the Gentile world, whether they were Romans, i.e. citizens, or whether they were barbarians, non-citizens. That is Paul's job. And the question is, why does he want to preach to the church in Rome? So he says, I'm eager, this is verse 15, if you can see it, I'm eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. 
And you might think just from the introduction, well, he's kind of got a job to do and he's meant to preach the gospel to the church in Rome, so that's what he's going to do. The issue is they're already Christian in Rome. So why does he feel the need to preach the gospel to them if they're already in Rome? And that question sort of holds us until the end of the book when he eventually gets around to giving an answer. Obviously, in Rome, they'd have heard the letter read out in one go, so it's quite easy. But we're just going to skip to the back, to the second half of the frame, the kind of conclusion. So sorry, we're going to be turning paper a little bit. So all the way over to 1142, page number, and chapter 15, and verse 19. So Paul says in verse 19b, So from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Brian, let's have the map up, if that's okay. So what Paul's done, that's Jerusalem, yellow circle, bottom right, and he's basically three missionary journeys. If we were to put the lines up of the distance Paul's covered, it would sort of cover all that area from the yellow box all the way up to the blue box. He's been all around there, um, and he's planted loads and loads of churches, and he would say that he's kind of fully fulfilled his obligation to preach the gospel in that kind of area. But now he wants to go to Spain. So that's the far left in the red. So have a look back in Romans 16, verse 23. But now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through that you will assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Paul wants to preach the gospel in places there is no gospel witness. He wants to go to what we might call unreached people groups or unreached places. And Rome has already got a church. But the thing about Rome, you can see it in the middle, Italy, you can see the Rome capital city. Rome is partly because it's Rome, the centre of the known world, and partly because geographically it's just closer to Spain than Jerusalem is. Rome is a brilliant staging play, point for Paul to go to this unreached part of the world, which is Spain, further west. And so Paul wants to go to Rome to preach the gospel to them, yes, but the reason he wants to do it is because he wants them to partner with him in that great mission. In some ways, Romans is basically a letter plugging for mission partner support, in effect. The word that he uses in verse 24, assist me on my journey, is almost a technical word to talk about assistance prayer and financial aid and maybe some maybe a kind of missionary team to go with him too that is paul writes romans so that the church in rome would be as eager as paul is for the gospel to be proclaimed in places that do not yet know about jesus paul writes romans so the church in rome would be as confident in the gospel to take the gospel out as paul is about the the rightness of taking the gospel to unreached places. Paul writes Romans that the church in Rome might be a church that sends and is sent to places where Jesus is not known. Let's um, let's think about the audience and think about that second part of the two-sided equation of being united and being harmonious as a church. The audience is obviously Rome and the church in Rome. So sorry, paper turning again. Let's go back to chapter one. Page 1128, verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Some of us, I know, like history and some of us uh, less so. So particularly if you're less interested in history, maybe try and do this over the next couple of minutes. Try and imagine to yourself that there was a time when real human beings... 
um, who looked a little bit like you, had jobs and grew up and families and homes, um, who lived in Rome, sat in probably houses and heard this letter being read to them. This isn't made up, this really happens. Paul really did write a letter, which was then passed out through the different house churches, and Christians, first-generation Christians, albeit, Christians heard this letter being read to them. And they heard it in the city of Rome, which means they were living in an extraordinary place. You know that phrase, all roads lead to Rome? That was true 2,000 years ago. It was the centre of an extraordinary empire. It was home to one million people. That's a lot of people now, right? But 2,000 years ago, one million people in one city was an almost unimaginable number of people. This is what one Roman poet said about the city of Rome. Rome, seat of empire, abode of the gods, surveys from her seven hills the circuit of the globe. And it was a city of extraordinary extremes. Extraordinary wealth with mansions that sat on top of those seven hills, most of all the palace of Caesar, but then desperate and brutal and grinding poverty down in the slums at the bottom of the hills. Malaria rampant, kind of slum buildings which were often collapsed because there were no building regulations in those days and they had to keep on building, keep on building to house one million people. Extraordinary gap between rich and poor, but extraordinary gap between the powerful and the weak as well. Caesar most of all, but also those ancient families that governed and ruled Rome from the top of the hills. But then the most extraordinary weakness, whether it be non-citizens who had far fewer rights than citizens, or women or children far fewer rights than they enjoy today, or slaves. And most of our assumptions, pretty much all of our assumptions about how the powerful should treat the weak, have been shaped by the Christian story. And Rome 2,000 years ago was not shaped at all by the Christian story. And so the powerful used the weak in any way they liked, for any purposes they liked. It was a very, very different place. It was a very alien place to anything we would understand today, which makes it very, very hard for us to grasp what it must have been like for those Christians gathering to hear Paul's letter to them, spread out probably in house churches around the city. They would have had no church building, no space big enough for them to gather, so they'd be spread out in houses all around the city, utterly different from the surrounding culture because Jesus had come in and changed their lives. In their churches, the wealthy and the poor sat together and the powerful and the weak sat together. In their churches, the powerful shared and served the weak. In their churches, the Jews, who would keep to themselves in Rome, 15 to 50,000 of them, would share space with Gentiles, Jew and Gentile together. Jew and Gentile eating together, an absolutely extraordinary thing in the ancient world. But a complicated thing too. Probably a few years before Paul wrote Romans, Claudius, the emperor of the day, had expelled all the Jews from Rome, or at least some of the Jews from Rome, and because of a disagreement about a guy called Crestus, one Roman historian says. Now, Crestus may well have made a reference to Christ, but just a, just a, a wrong spelling. So it's entirely possible that there had been such a dispute about Jesus in the Jewish community in Rome, it caused so much of a kind of ruckus that the emperor thought, it's easier if I just get rid of all the Jews and send them out of the city. So you can imagine a situation where the Jewish Christians, who were mostly the leaders of these house churches, had been expelled from the city, 
and left behind the Gentile Christians who'd had to step up in their absence. Then a few years later, Claudius invited, allowed the Jews to come back, and suddenly the Jews were thinking, well, we were leading this church a few years ago, and we should lead it again. But you've got all these Gentile Christians who've been happily getting on with the work of church ministry in the meantime. And you can imagine a real divide, or at least tension, between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And you do get a real sense as we go through, you get a real sense of that. That if they're not at loggerheads, at least there's the temptation of um, smug superiority and angry rejection of each other. And Paul is desperate that they be united. Let me just give you one example of that. So chapter 15, sorry, again, we're, we're flipping. So back to 1142. He tells them about a financial gift that he's going to be taking from Macedonia and Achaia, which is basically Gentile areas, to Jerusalem, which is a much more Jewish area. Um, so, read verse 26. Macedonia and Achaia, Gentiles, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem, Jews. They were pleased to do this, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. That, for Paul, is just an illustration of Jewish and Gentile unity, which he thinks, all the way through the letter, is absolutely crucial. So here we have that binding together theme of Romans, as well as that sending out theme of Romans. And you get in the frame, in the intro and the conclusion, you get both themes very clearly. And the question is, the question then is, is how is that going to happen? If, like, to be bound together and to be sent out are the kind of railway tracks along which any church is going to run if it's going to be healthy, how will the train run? if you like. What will be the power to make that happen? And it becomes very clear as Paul begins to proclaim the gospel that he's a very wise pastor because he understands the dynamics of spiritual growth and transformation both on a personal level and also a corporate level. He gets that if any Christian is going to change or any church is going to change, it will only happen as the gospel of grace transforms our hearts and our heads. He knows that in the words of Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. He knows that the gospel of God will bind us together and the gospel of grace will send us out. And that is what the body of the letter is. It is an exposition, an articulation of the gospel of grace. How we come under grace in chapters 1 through 4. How we live under grace in chapters 5 through 8. How um, grace overflows from us to others in chapters 9 through 11. How uh, the gospel of grace shapes church communities in verses 12 to 15. So just for the rest of our time, um, just for a couple of minutes, we're going to think together about those different themes or different sections of the letter and see how they relate to that great binding and sending, um, which is why Paul wrote. So that whole coming under grace thing, we're going to be thinking about that over the next few weeks. Paul's argument is that all of us need the gospel of grace, that none of us are by nature righteous. Um, let's go back to chapter 3, verse 20, and we'll move linear this time, so we won't need to go back and forth. So Paul's great conclusion to chapters 1 to 3 is that we, all of us, need grace because none of us are by nature righteous. 3.20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And how is it that God declares us righteous, as in puts us in right relationship with the God of the universe? It is by his grace which we receive by faith. And that's what he talks about in 3.21 to 26. Which means that there is no room for boasting 
So 327, where then, oh, I've lost my place. Apologies. There we go. 327, where then is boasting? You see, if all of us, Jew and Gentile, the religious and the irreligious, all of us alike are together under sin, if none of us can save ourselves but need to be saved by Jesus, then all of us are levelled. All of us are on the same ground, no matter my background or nationality, no matter my language, my people group, my culture, my society, my preference or my interests. I am the same as you. I need grace just like you do. And that should of and does bring all of us to a level. It humbles all of us, which makes unity possible. But the other thing that we learn from chapters 1 through 4 is if all people need the gospel of grace, then that provides a tremendous motive for Christians to take the gospel of grace to all people. No one is excluded from the verdict of chapters 1 through 4. All people are in need of Jesus because all people are under sin. But also, all people are in need of Jesus, and they receive it by faith, which means all people can receive it. It doesn't require you to look like something or be like something. The truth that we receive salvation by faith alone levels all of us, because you don't need to have a particular background or people group or nationality or culture or society to come into the Christian community. All you need is to receive by faith. That's coming under grace. Then he moves in chapter 5 to the idea of living under grace, what it means to be a Christian, and it means that you're loved by God. Chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And chapter 5 begins with God's love, and then chapter 8 ends with God's love. Nothing, nothing can separate you, if you're a Christian, from the love of God, nothing at all which is extraordinarily, a extraordinarily secure place to stand, isn't it? That nothing can separate me. That because I've received the gospel by faith, I'm utterly secure, which means I don't need to compete with anybody else. And again, that binds us together, doesn't it? If we're constantly competing, then we're going to end up divided. But if we know we're bound together by Jesus and we're loved, whatever happens, that unites us together. But it also makes us eager for the gospel to go to all, doesn't it? Because if I know just what I have in Jesus, that I'm loved, I'm bound to Jesus. And Romans 5 through 8 contains some of the most beautiful chapters of the whole Bible. If I know I have that, well, it means that I long for it to overflow to other people. That's living under grace 5 to 8. And then Romans 9 to 11, the overflow of grace. And this is a very complicated section. It's Romans 9 to 11. And we can think that it's, an it's sort of difficult and irrelevant because it's kind of Jewish and Gentiles. Um, but I think the argument there, we won't look at the specifics because we don't have time, but I think the argument there, which we'll get to, is something like this. We often think that when the gospel comes to me, it comes to me like a reservoir. We talked about this earlier. And then it may or may not be that the water of grace, as it were, flows out to other people. But there's nothing kind of inherent in receiving the gospel that provides that as an imperative. That's how often how the Christian thinks. That's often how I think. But Romans 9 to 11 is trying to persuade us and convince us that part of the very reason that you receive the Christian message for yourself, if you're a Christian, is so that it might overflow to other people. Every Christian and every church is not a reservoir but is a fountain, because grace is always meant to overflow. 
That's, that's challenging because it means we don't get to say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I, I, I'm not one of those Christians that kind of um, is evangelical about sharing my faith with other people. We don't, we don't get to say that because the gospel of grace is always meant to overflow to others. That's Romans 9 to 11, the overflow of grace. And then a community shaped by grace. In view of God's mercy, how practically, in 12 to 15, how practically are we going to be united? How practically are we going to reach out with the gospel? What will happen in a church community, practically speaking, when the gospel of grace both binds us and also sends us? And so Romans 12 to 15 gets super practical about what that will look like in practice. So three things for us to hold on to from the sermon. I guess some of us um, like guidebooks, don't we? We like looking at guidebooks and checking out the maps before we go to somewhere. And some of us just want to plough and plunge our way into the place. And I guess this sermon is functioning a little bit like a guidebook. If you have no guidebook or no map, probably when you get to a city, let's say Rome for the sake of um, the sermon, you get to Rome, you don't know where you're going, you don't know what you're looking for, you're going to miss lots of stuff. And the idea of this sermon is it functions a bit like a guidebook for us as we get into Rome properly. What I'm, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for the gospel of grace and how it both binds me and it sends me. And I'm, I'm aware of the different sections of the book and the different argument that Paul is making in chapters 1 through 4 and 5 through 8 and 9 through 11 and 12 through 15. So hold on to these things. Just like you remember tidbits from the guidebook when you actually get to Rome, hold on to these ideas as we go through the book. So something to remember. Um, and then something to ask. Here's the question to ask ourselves. In what ways do I need the gospel of grace to change me so that I'm more bound to my fellow Christians and so that I'm more eager to be sent out for the gospel to overflow? Where is it that in our church culture corporately or my own personal attitude towards Christian things, I need this gospel to begin to change and transform my perspective, either binding me more closely to others or sending me in a more eager way to other people. And then finally, something to imagine. Um, we could imagine the way in which this gospel would make a difference to us, but I just want to take us back 2,000 years to when Paul was longing to get to Spain. We're pretty sure he never got to Spain. Um, he got to Rome, uh, but he was under arrest, and he was pretty free for a while under arrest. It was kind of nominally house arrest, but he was free to do what he wanted. But at some point, that imprisonment changed, and at some point, he was, we think, killed. Paul never got... Let's just have the map up, if we can, Brian. Paul never got to Spain. There we go. But, of course, Paul may not have got there, but the gospel of grace did get there. In fact, we have one or two people in the church right now who have come from Spain at some points. The Gospel of Grace got there. The Gospel of Grace got even further. You can just about see the British Isles right at the top of the map called Britannia. The Gospel of Grace was taken to the British Isles. And the Roman legions never crossed Hadrian's Wall. They never tried to conquer Scotland. Um, much, too, much too many barbarians. No good reason to conquer Scotland. I wish Ian Stewart was here so we could tease him for being Scottish. The Roman legions never crossed Hadrian's Wall. Oh, we do have a Scot here. Sorry, Dave. Um, the Roman legions never crossed Hadrian's Wall, but the gospel of grace crossed Hadrian's Wall, and it went to Scotland, and it went to Asia, and it went to Africa, and it went to the Americas, because churches for 2,000 years have been so transformed by the gospel of grace that they've been bound together, and they've been sent out. 
And as it has done for 2,000 years, so the book of Romans will do that for us too. Let's pray. Father God, please, in your kindness, would you so transform us by seeing the gospel of grace and all that you've done for us, that we would be increasingly bound together, humbled together, and increasingly be sent out together with this glorious gospel of a brilliant and faithful saviour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Over to Hilary. Amen. <laughs>